This is Shaka Wart Speak. You always hear the thing like, you don't know how you're going to react until you're actually in a situation. So, uh, New York, 2012, um, I'm in the city and go to this, get invited to this party at the art director's club, all right, which is kind of a, a big deal sort of place or whatever, I guess. <clears throat> so we go and it's a small invite only party. It's like an early opening for something they have going on. And everybody there, except for like four or five of us, are people. Like real, like yeah. real people. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, we notice immediately that the kind of biggest person in the room, at least for some designers, uh, is Stefan Sagmeister. I don't know who that is, but that name's amazing. So he's the dude. Uh, you would have you seen it for um, uh, a publication. He was doing some typography and some layout. And so what he decided to do is he used a razor to cut the typography into his body. And so there's this very iconic picture of Stefan yep. Sagmeister, and he's just like this poster with his, him and his studio assistant like did this on his bare chest, just kind of cut the typography into him, took a photo, and there was your layout. Um, but he's kind of um, kind of one of the big names um, over the last 20 years. But he's sitting there talking to somebody, just kind of having a drink, and we're all having this very hard time because we. We're in the same room with them. We'd like to go say hi and tell them, hey, you know, you've been influential or we like what you do or just to be able to have the story to say, hey, I, I met Stefan Sagmeister. Um, and nobody knows what to do. And so we go over to him and we just kind of say, it's me and another guy. Uh, and we're like, hey, uh, you know, what do we say? We, we tell him the dumbest thing we could possibly say, which is, oh, hi, you're Stefan Sagmeister. <laughs> and he's just like, Yes. I am. Hmm. Yes, I am. Thank you. I am, I am Stefan Sagmeister. I was like, okay, um, cool. So it's good to meet you. <laughs> it's just like the like you. Just, you don't even just, introduce your name. You like, introduce yeah, his name. We couldn't even figure out how to be like normal. Yeah. Like there was nothing there. Yeah. Like like you wouldn't. Would you approach somebody on the street that wasn't a celebrity that way? Like Correct. would you ever talk to anybody that way? Like no, yeah. it's ridiculous. You just don't just do that. Fumble around it. Yeah, maybe it. I mean, and they just felt stupid. We ended up leaving the party early. Totally. You know, because it's yeah. like, oh, we just, you That's know. how I knew I wasn't cut. I mean, when I went to, um, are you recording? We're recording this. Yeah, we're we recording. Just, yeah. You want to pick up with, you want to let that be our opening to yeah, I think <laughs> your so. Stefan Stagmeister story? To, yeah, yeah. So we're Shaco Art Speak, and we're talking. <laughs> well, hold on. Let's let's go back. Let's do a, let's do a, a firmer open for that. It's just. We, hey, so we're talking about confidence and Gareth is selling. We, we started this conversation before we started recording about interactions with people that are celebrities and um, yeah, p- poor ways we've responded mm-hmm. out of some lack of confidence or worthiness or something. And so here we are. We just decided we'll let you hear some of that. So that's what's been happening. Yeah. And now we're really starting. And so welcome to Shaco Art Speak. We're going to continue that conversation. And it relates to our topic today, which is on where, like, where in the world does confidence come from? So kind of like, what is confidence? Where does it come from? And, and how is that, like, where do you get your confidence when it comes to being a maker, designer, an artist? Yeah, there's a whole um, lot there, right? Yeah, because I mean, we've, we've met people who we, we could probably place on, you know, opposite ends of that spectrum, right? Where we've had Correct. folks who we would say, oh, they, they severely lack confidence. Um, and then other folks, we say, maybe they've got a bit too much of it. Right. Maybe they're overconfident. Yeah. Right. But it, like the person who is so confident, they just eat on a podcast. <laughs> um, Chicharrones. 
So yeah, I mean, coronavirus like, <laughs> food right now, y'all. You, you get what you can get at the store, right? Absolutely. You just eat whatever is available. You order stuff online, and they, they send you the most amazing interpretations. <laughs> yeah, for real. It's like, uh, what was this? I ordered salad. I, I got pork rice. <laughs> I got pork rice. <laughs> it's like they knew what I really wanted. No, honestly, my wife bought those for me because she knows I love them. I have full confession. She she brought them this morning, so. Yeah, I, I have several guilty pleasures, um, but that's not one of them. That's right. It's very, very few people, dude. It's the California boy in me, Southern California boy. I, I've, I've wanted I've wanted to like pork rinds because people yeah. will tell me that there's like some sort of like there's some positive things about eating them. Yeah, it's mystical. But one of the positive things for me that doesn't exist in pork rinds is the taste. <laughs> so I just can't do it. I just can't do it. You don't have any confidence for it. I don't. Like, I, no, I have no confidence. And people are like, oh, we'll try another kind. You might like them. It's like, no, I have no confidence. I'm actually surprised you don't like them. I am too. I should. I mean, from where I come from, like, there's a, a fantastic barbecue place that uh, just outside of Memphis. And uh, you go and they have homemade pork rinds. Mm. Like some people, you know, you go to a restaurant, you get like a basket of rolls or yeah. bread or something. Here it's homemade pork rinds. Yep. And some of them like are they're like they're like an like a half half letter sized piece of paper. They're gigantic. Um and apparently they're fantastic, but whatever the taste is for pork rinds, um, I don't like it. Wow. Now I got confidence in other Can foods. we still be friends? I mean we can try. Okay. <laughs> We'll play it by ear. We'll play it. We'll see how it goes <laughs> from here forward. But yeah, uh, I think, you know, we've, we've met people on both ends of that spectrum, mm-hmm. right? Where they're they're lacking confidence and you wish they had more because you've seen that their work is fantastic or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. But also folks who have had a whole lot of confidence and maybe not for any real reason. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they have for a real reason. It just feels like it's gone off the rails, you know, and they've mm-hmm. surpassed like the sort of thing that... The, the type of people we really want to interact with, you know? Yeah. Um, but no matter where those people are on the spectrum, I don't think a lot of the times we really stop to ask the question in a sober way, like, where does that come from? Where's that confidence come from? Because we're very aware of when we don't have it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that we're always, as individuals, I don't know that we have the tools by ourselves to really figure that out. Or, you know, maybe it's just a spot where it's just not a comfortable conversation to have with yourself. Yeah, you know, yeah, you're just yeah. like I just don't have it right now, and I'm just gonna kind of stick my head down and do something else, right. or I'm gonna I'm gonna really hate and lament the fact that I don't have it. So, yeah, it's it's just a weird spot because I, you know, when you brought this topic up to me, I thought about it. I was like, you know, it's funny how many times I've interacted with the idea of confidence in my work, but how how I have never engaged in a conversation like this. Yeah. 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 That's the thing. It's like, I've never, cause, cause you'll say things like prescriptively in, in school, Hey, you need to be more confident. And, but, but like what confident in what? It's like people, t- so I'm not the tallest man in the world, but it'd what? be like somebody okay. telling me, Hey Gary, you just need to be a little taller. Yeah. And it's like, well, I can't dunk. Well, yeah, you just need to be a little taller. It's like, yeah, cool. How do yeah. I do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do I make that happen? You know, Garrett, I, there's people that are five five or below that are dunking now. So maybe dude, man, you can. Maybe you, you can, you're, dude. You're, you're touching. You're touching <laughs> a sore spot. I think you might be able I, to do it. I, I would love to be able to. Yeah, um, I believe. But you know, I, I have confidence I, in you. I grew up with Spud Spud Webb, yeah. Muggsy Bogues, and yeah. watching them and telling myself, "Hey, but this is a time five, where seven, I thought five, I was five. still going to grow." Right. Um, so as like a middle schooler or an elementary school kid, I was like, ah, "I can be in sixth grade and dunk." Look at that dude. He's five four, yep. five five. Yep. And now I'm like, you know, five, seven on a good yeah. day. and On a great day. 
<laughs> so for the next episode, when we talk about eroding confidence, <laughs> a few examples for you. Uh, but no, it's uh, you know, it, it, but it does feel kind of the same way. If somebody says, "Oh, you, know, you just got to be more confident," it's right. one of those things that I, how do I muster that, especially yeah. in a place where I'm not confident? Sure. So yeah, so that I mean, I, it, <clears throat> I just have seen this a lot, experienced a lot, and started thinking about it. You know, and mm-hmm. um, felt like perhaps I mean I, to to echo your point, it just seemed like perhaps there is a a meaningful plot point in the kind of the larger matrix of everything we're talking about that yeah. that needs to be brought forward a little bit. And it, this could end up being like a two-parter. I feel like, you know, with the virus, we've been having to navigate, you know, how we do things a little differently. And so um, full disclosure, I think that this might be a, a rougher uh, uh, sort of laying out the premise and then we'll come to it, a, se- a follow-up session possibly to kind yeah, of, I mean, kind it, of it, expand on a little bit. I mean, for my, me, it feels like there needs. It, it's going to be a, feel a bit more exploratory for me. So yeah. I, I don't know that I'm going to be coming from this in this conversation with a lot of like hard answers to begin totally. With. Yeah, yeah. I think, and that's so why I'm glad you're saying that because my mind is like, we, we that's that's kind of how I'm approaching it. I think mm-hmm. it might be a worthwhile opportunity for us just to kind of explore it and, and risk it to think about it and then see how that sets up a, uh, some clearer thoughts the next time around. Yeah. And so you, you made a good it. point earlier that I think is worth repeating for everybody listening is that, you know, we, we kind of revisited the idea of anxiety and there's a lot of anxiety right now mm-hmm. with a lot of uncertainty and things changing. And, you know, the, the, the art world and job markets just looking very different than they did four to six weeks ago. Correct. Um, and so, you know, if you kind of look at it uh, with a few steps taken back, you know, it, it seems that the foil for anxiety is confidence in some ways. Yeah. Um, you know, they match up in that sort of uh, opposite, almost sort of way. So it, it yeah. I think it's helpful to not just identify the problem or talk about the problem that's, right. that's going on, but also to say maybe there's pathways where we can understand things that could be solutions. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that's that's great, man. No, I, I think, yeah. So like, yeah, because I, I was, for me, it's like, um, uh, it's, it, it seems like, well, the metaphor, and this might be jumping ahead in a way, but the metaphor for me uh, shared with you was, um, if a, you know, if a bridge is made well, which means it has a purpose, mm-hmm. it's accomplishing the purpose, mm-hmm. it's enjoining two pieces of land, it's enabling a certain amount of load bearing weight to kind of move across with frequency repeatedly, right? For years and years and years. There's an engineering to it. It's understood. Therefore, um, there's an eye test for confidence, so you can look at it. If it passes the eye test, you don't have to think as much as you cross it. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't pass the eye test, you start to gauge um, how much am I willing to risk? How important is it to get to the other side? Mm-hmm. Right. So now it's a little more of a complex decision. Um, so when I think about confidence, there's confidence in the bridge. Mm-hmm. So that I can just assume the bridge and move across. There's a riggedy bridge, like some of the ones I used to hike and you find out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And you're just looking for strong pieces and the rest is predicated on your own, your confidence in yourself. Mm-hmm. So there's the outward projection of confidence in the thing, if you will. And then there's confidence in yourself. And then there's you in relationship to your pals at least for me in this, in this kind of metaphor, which is true. So one of my buddies, uh, his name was, uh, his nickname was Bud. His name is Larry. Uh, one of my all time best friends, um, 
kind of like brothers, but he he's always exuded extreme confidence. Mm-hmm. So he was the jump first person, yeah, and I was the jump last person, mm-hmm. and we kind of balanced each other out. So, so looking at the Riggedy Bridge, assessing my self confidence in the context, and then deriving gaining confidence from someone who seemed to have a more confident view on the riggedy bridge. Mm-hmm. And then you're starting to process these variables intuitively almost, but you're processing them and, and you're deciding if I'm going to make a decision or not. And so it's, it's, I don't know if that exhausts kind of the word picture, the, the metaphor of that, but that actually is a true scenario that I've lived through um, repeatedly is um, it seems like there's a multifaceted way that one is confident yeah. Um, and oftentimes what I've found is statedly uh, confidence is mostly assumed in the context of um, sort of self-esteem or, or believing in yourself. Mm-hmm. So so we get like we get this idea that there's something we have to sort of at, at a minimum sort of know about ourselves. Yeah. But then everything else doesn't. It's like we don't think in firm terms about the other aspects. Mm-hmm. Where is it headed? What is it resting on? Right. So like, where's my work? Well, what's it resting on? What's well, resting on the healthy economy? Mm-hmm. Right. But you didn't know that because you were assuming the economy and actually in some ways rebelling against it. But now the economy is stalled and now your your confidence is wavered because you were assuming the strength of the economy yeah. to float the work. You, you know, as as an example, something you know, all of us we're dealing with that with our yeah. our gallery, right? So like mm-hmm. I don't know. So I started to think about it. Like, where does your confidence come? And what I mean by confidence, I mean in total. Like, we always talk about holistic, mm-hmm. but where does it come from? And so these are just some of the things I've been thinking about. Like the other example you've we've both used and we've heard is like the airplane. You can be both not confident and confident and board the plane mm-hmm. and go where you need to go because the strength of of you moving from one point to another is predicated on things that are entirely out of your hands. Mm-hmm. capacity of the uh, the um, pilots, the strength of their team to make sure the maintenance of the plane is, is upheld, the plane moves well, the weather is good. There's all these other conditions that are uh, at play that are entirely out of your hands. And so both people exercise a certain kind of faith or confidence in those external factors, one weak, one strong. Yeah. The result is the same. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. You know, because I think about artists that both are equally adept at making, but one person lands in the same sort of target zone as the other, and one feels very strong about it, and the other one feels very suspicious and weak about it. But they mm-hmm. both obtained the same thing. Yeah. It's very interesting, you know? It is interesting. I think, you know, and another thing to kind of put on the table for a point of discussion, since we're kind of laying the landscape yeah, for yeah, things yeah. today, um, is also that um, I think confidence looks different. Mm-hmm. I think it, it, we, we really do like to um, do a lot of things where we kind of make make concepts or ideas or, um, you know, ideology and kind of like stick it in a very compact package and say, here's a nice bow on it. It looks exactly like this. So I think sometimes when we when we think of confidence, we have a particular picture in our mind. Mm-hmm. But I would I would urge us in this conversation to to kind of say, well, actually, that can look like a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. Because you could have a confidence in the work you're doing or what you're producing, and someone could see that, and they and they could say, "Oh, that's not confidence; that's stupidity," mm-hmm. or "That's being naive." Mm-hmm. Right? There's, I think, there's ways that confidence, as it's played out, can look different to different people depending on their viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that I think is helpful to remember as well that um, our confidence may not always be viewed as confident by some folks. It might right. look very different because of somebody else's viewpoints or something like that. And that's not to say, oh, we can't understand what confidence is or know what it is, but it's also to just push back against this idea that confidence is going to look like a particular thing or play itself out in particular scenarios. Right. That that's not the case, that it's going to look, you know, a little strange. Um, you know, I mean, you can think about the fact that if um, – like if you just did kind of a mental game and you said, all right, if you knew the future um, and you knew what was going to happen, happen in five minutes, you would have extreme confidence in your ability in that five minutes of what you could do because you know the outcome. Right. And so you could do something that looks very uh, brash or brazen, but because you knew what was going to happen, no issues. You have yep. confidence. Yeah. But to other people, it might look irresponsible. Sure. It might look dangerous. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, the eye test can can not concord with the um, the expression itself, right? In terms of what's required, yeah, 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 I think that's a great point. And you know, and some of this, if we think about it in terms of uh, art and design, uh, it's really easy for us to look back on things that might be monumental changes within the way that people were making and doing, um, and just think, oh yeah, they were they were visionaries, they were pioneers, yeah. but they weren't being talked about that way no. when it was going on. No. So, you know, can you imagine like, you know, Mondrian finally pulls this painting upright and people are like, oh, you got some red, blue, and yellow lines and stuff all over this. And then, you know, people are just like, what the what, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you doing, That's Pete? not art. That's not what's going on. But right. he's he's confident. I mean, there's, yeah, yeah. there's almost nothing in, in reading about his work that shows that he was not like singularly, yeah. you know, committed to this, that there was a confidence in what he was doing, but it probably was not being received in that same way. Well, that's interesting. So I, I'm listening and, and like it begs, so you're spot on, like in terms of like, I, I was like, so we, we need to consult the ultimate Oracle on confidence. Like what is de- definitionally, how does, how does the Google define confidence? Yes. Yeah, so let's, let's, so I consulted Google in light in, you know, so what, what the Google says is it's uh, the feeling or belief that one can rely on someone or something firm trust or it's the state of feeling certain about the truth of something or a feeling of self-assurance arising from one's appreciation of one's own ability so there you go you got it's in someone something Mm -hmm. or it's in yourself yeah so yeah i mean there's that um there's those definitions i actually wonder if if the the problem lies in the fact that those are fragments of a larger whole. I was going to say, I mean, it, it felt like uh, even in that definition, I was like, I don't feel like Google feels confident about their definition. Google's not sure. Should we ask Siri? <laughs> so it's like, we're going to give you three definitions uh, for confidence because, well, the first one might just not get it. Um, but, you know, all joking aside. Siri, what is confidence? Here's some information. Even Siri's not confident. Yeah, she didn't even so answer. Tell you. you can go look for it. She's not going to tell me. Thanks, Siri. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a tricky. It's a tricky subject. There's a lot that goes into it. Yep. Which you know, surprise if you've listened to us ever before. Uh, <laughs> congratulations. We're talking about something that is not easily wrapped up. <laughs> yeah, um, that's what we do. <laughs> we get to, we get to be here again. Well, it's funny too, man. It's immersive, effusive topics. Yeah, because it's funny. Like it, to your point, because I think we intuitively like to make judgments about it about ourselves and others. So a lot of times, like when we see someone who's confident, our barometer might be off because we don't have like, we haven't thought about it clearly. And so sometimes people that are confident are accused for cocky. Yeah. I mean like excessive, excessive, yes. overwhelming expressions of confidence 
they're cocky, they're showbody, they're, they're, you know, they're, um, it's unwarranted. And sometimes that's true. Lord knows I've known some cocky people and there's been times in my life where I've been a, a very cocky jerk, you know, like, um, so here, man. Yeah. Yeah. So like, uh, I've done it myself and I've seen it that's there, but sometimes, you know, there is, um, uh, Okay, so what we're talking about is a kind of like a definitional clarity that um, kind of demands to be persistent in all occasions. Mm-hmm. Not saying that's, that's, there's a lot to be said there, but so because that's hard to, that deals with uh, worldview assumptions we have. Mm-hmm. If we think that everything is situational and purely contingent, then um, what do we make our judgments on? Well, we base it a lot of times folks will just be like, well, it's just a matter of my opinion. Mm-hmm. Well, what's your opinion based on? And well, it's how I feel. Well, how are you feeling today when I'm very confident? Okay, so you're lacking in your mind. But, so then when your lack or your hunger can magnify what you see expressed in another, mm-hmm. right? And we know this with food because you get hungry. Dude, when you're hungry enough, stuff that you don't normally care about is magnified. You start... You start desiring things that you're like, I don't normally go for this, but that sounds amazing right now. I'm not going to lie to you. Depending on how long the conversation goes, I might be reaching you, for your pork rinds. That's exactly right. That's what I'm hoping for. That's why we're dragging this out. I'm going get, to get you eat pork rinds before the show's over. I'll eat them. I won't like them. I'll, I'll eat them. <laughs> that's right. I, you need to eat them because I ate too many. I'm feeling sick now. Um, really. Uh, but, um, but so, you know, I mean, in the same way, like a, a deprivation of a kind of equilibrium, a kind of yeah. uh, sort of... Uh, groundedness can lead you misinterpreting uh, someone's confidence as being, um, you know, too confident. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean this, um, I've always been really curious, like always, how's this work? What's this like? And um, I was never content enough to just kind of sit in that curiosity. I always had to find stuff out. So what this meant is uh, I was literally that little nerdy kid in school that would finish things up and then I would just go back and grab like one of the Britannicas and just like flip to a thing that I was curious about and just read the encyclopedia mm-hmm. on it. Um, and so uh, what this meant is that at, at one point there were things I knew that my friends didn't, um, that other people in the class didn't. So I was adding to conversations in elementary school about things I knew that people just hadn't been, you know, hadn't been taught yet because of the nature of school. Um, and there were several people who would say things like, oh, well, you're just saying this stuff. You're just some know-it-all. And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, no, I, I don't. I don't. But I know this, and I'm confident in the knowledge of this, but your perception of it is is, is different than, than what actually is. It's perceived as a threat. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're excited about it. And I, you know, we all, you know, we were talking off air. We wrestled with that um, in both directions. Yeah. Um, something, that, something that came to mind that, you know, might be three – since we're just thinking aloud mm-hmm. and allowing our audience to hear this, yeah, confidence, curiosity, and contentment mm. are all are three things to me that would be worth unpacking. Oh gosh, yes. over because of their inner inner relationship mm-hmm. uh, between each other: confidence, curiosity, contentment. And so, uh, I th- my inkling is to believe that you'll agree with me in thinking that we'll probably should unpack all three of those over a couple episodes. And how yeah. they relate to each other. Yeah, I mean, Where do you get your confidence from? And, and somewhere in there, curiosity needs to be at play, but also contentment. And contentment is a dirty word for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. So not to get it, not to derail our, <laughs> our focus talking, <laughs> but in thinking about it, you know, you just, you got, I could, you, you know, you saying that you're curious, 
um, triggered contentment as a component and confidence. It's like, oh yeah, there's a, like there's a a fullness. Um, and the thing is, I think people want a kind of confidence, a kind of, uh, uh, you know, um, humble confidence in their work in their approach. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a desire we have. We recognize that we want the benefits. So, you know, I used, I've used this in, in a million times in the class and on this podcast, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um, but the, I always use the illustration of the, of the lake bed, like your confidence in a frozen lake bed is dependent upon how thick the ice is. Mm-hmm. If the ice is not very thick, but you do need to go out there to get, you know, a ski or something you've let slide out there, you're going to lean very close to the ground to listen for where it's going to give way or crack. You're going to be looking because you don't want to fall on the ice, you know, fall in the water. But if you perceive that the ice is solid, frozen all the way through, and you're confident that that's true, people will ice skate, they will dance, they will build ice castles, they will make culture because they're standing on confident ground mm. such that they no longer have to think about that. So I know that people want that. Do you, yeah. do you see what I'm saying? They want the freedom to assume the ground they stand on. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's almost <clears throat> like if, if I were to put this in too crude of a, of a, of a cliche sort of... Um, kind of truism or whatever is that most of the time we think of confidence as an end goal, but in, in the most, I think healthy ways, confidence actually becomes a beginning point. It's foundational. It's uh, it's something where we, you know, we want that confidence because we think that getting that is going to, to do something mm-hmm. for us, but I don't think we fully understand how much confidence can do for us in our work. Correct. Um, and I, I know that in my, uh, in my personal practice, the, um, the first few years doing design work, um, I was, Almost every project I did, I would finish, and my feeling would be, I hope this is right. Mm-hmm. I hope this is okay. I hope this is what I was supposed to do. And I see these same sentiments in my students who, when we have an assignment in class, they'll say, well, what do you want me to do? And I'm like, well, that's, that's the wrong questions, right? It shows that there's a lack of confidence there. Yeah. Um, in the same way that I was experiencing that confidence at the beginning of my career of just saying, I hope this is right. Mm-hmm. But now... Um, as uh, I've gotten older, as maturity's been there, as like just just the the volume of time has increased behind me. Um, the when I finish a project, now it is you know is this meeting their needs? Mm-hmm. Is this um, is this the best it could be? Like there are different questions, right? So it's not is this right, but it deals more with I'm confident that my solutions are moving in the right direction. Just whether or not these solutions are as good as they could be, or, uh, as you know, is it pushing me to be better, to learn more, to, to be more distinct in what I do, whatever it is, but I'm no longer asking those questions. Now, this does not mean that I'm now hundred percent confident. Mm-hmm. It just means that, that confidence is something that is not, it's not a black and white. I don't have it or I do have it, Right. but it's, it's definitely growing in degrees. Yeah. Um, and I hope it continues that trajectory for the sure. rest of my career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I definitely think, so like, you know, when we're looking at this holistically, like um, some of your confidence changes when you realize what, like for even in your trajectory you're describing, it seems like and just knowing you for a while, that changes when you realize what's at stake but what can't be taken from you. Yeah, yeah. So the, when when the work you do is brought into scalable focus and you understand what, Risks are involved, but what all, like what's not on the chopping block, mm-hmm. you're freer to pursue it with confidence because you've assessed 
um, the risk reward factor, the, the meaning implications. And, and, you know, um, I think when we talk about self-confidence, there's an overcompensation, but there's also just the confidence in learning and kind of go, like there's overcompensating because you can't afford to be seen as lacking. There's the, I think the better road, which is, um, I can't do everything. So, but I'm confident to lean into these things, which is not to say I can do them perfectly, but I can do them. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with people's varied response to, to me doing them. I'm just going to do it faithfully. And, you know, like I'm in, in that season of my life with painting for like the first time ever, which is progressively kind of moving along where it's like, I'm just at peace with what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm not entirely sure. I'm not confident about the way the work will be received. Right. But I'm confident in the making of the work. Mm. And, I, and what I mean by that is that's why I said I'm curious and content. That's why I was like, those are two things. So I'm curious enough to make the work, to see it come together in multiple iterations. And I'm content with the outcomes that follow. Yeah. You see, like I'm content with, I've made peace with that. And so I like the unknown part as much as I like what I know part enough to be confident. Uh, not now confidence is not resting in people's approval. It's not resting in being exalted or, or kind of brought high where people are like, Whoa, that guy. It's just that I've, I've been able to size up enough to realize that I'm not everything. And, um, fame is not necessarily anything that I feel motivated by. So then it's kind of like, well then what, what, what is it? And that's a process to kind of, kind of decide what it means to, to voice yourself or make work that voices certain ideas through the, the means of a medium. Um, but, but like you, I think, um, we're, you move to a place where, um, you're not living and dying on one plank. And so you're like, okay, I can, I can do this mm-hmm. and I've assessed the, the loss. Like in other words, back in the day, I felt like I had too much to lose yeah. by letting everybody see everything that I was doing. Yeah. Cause then they'd know that I was a fraud or not very good or, um, and maybe it's just old age, but I'm just uh, like, I, f- I am, uh, existentially more comfortable with people just being like, that guy sucks. That's true. I mean, I think <clears> my, <throat> my early twenties when I started, uh, when I started grad school, um, I remember sitting in the library in the grad student section doing some work and a friend of mine came in to study and I'd been making these like really pretentious posters um, that looking back, like they just, you know, they make you just. Uh, yeah, I got some know, stuff I'm embarrassed of. Super myself. uncomfortable because oh, yeah. it was so pretentious. You're not confident in those. No. <laughs> yes, but, you know, I, I remember like uh, coming in and like thinking that what I was doing was like so just like it was so important, it was so culturally important. Mm hmm. Uh, people needed to see these things, but I did not want to show them to anybody, not at all. <laughs> and and I what was there is that there there may have been a confidence, or so I thought, in the work I was creating, but there was not a confidence in me mm-hmm. or the the work at large. Um, and some of that was like you're saying, there wasn't kind of enough time or volume behind me. Where if somebody said, "Oh, you're terrible at this," well, well, maybe I am. Mm-hmm. But I'm at a point now where if somebody looks at my stuff, they can't tell me I'm not a graphic designer. Mm-hmm. They can just tell me they don't like it. That's right. You know, even if they tell me, oh, you're no graphic designer, I was like, well, that's not true because uh, I've been doing this for 15 years. Yeah. Um, so I know that's not true. Um, but yeah, you don't like it. That's okay. But it also, yeah. I think, comes from a fact, the fact that um, we, we, we are hugely judgmental 
uh, to ourselves a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And so in most classes I teach, I always include a conversation. I know you do in some of your courses as well, uh, about failure Mm -hmm. and all anybody who's been in art and design for five minutes has probably seen a video or read a chapter in a book or an article or something that deals with, uh, accepting failure as part of the process and methodology Mm -hmm. of creation. Yeah. So when you're making, you're creating stuff, you're doing this stuff, like failure is a part of it. Yeah. Um, it, but it takes a long time to get okay with that. Yeah, it's really strange, man, because, I mean, when you think about, again, like, it's worth kind of putting a finger on these these kinds of thoughts because, like, uh, so many people are afraid to fail, but you're like, but then at the same, so it doesn't make sense for somebody, and I meet folks like this every year all the time, and I've been here too, where, where on the one hand, they're, like, afraid to fail. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, they don't think success is definable. Yeah. So then why are you afraid to fail? Yeah. You're not being honest in one or the other direction. You, 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 we, we, you can't, that's a, that's a, I know there's folks that would philosophically argue that you could live comfortably in paradox and, um, you know, there is no, there is no, um, (laughs) there's no up or down or no, but you know, that same person, you know, I once heard a story where, um, this thinker, he's was from India and he had this kind of Anglo, this white professor, explaining to him Indian culture and, and so they're having, they're talking about paradox and, um, it's, they're two philosophers and both living in America now, but one is from India. And so they're debating and, um, with their philosophy students, this was like a thing they're like, let's debate this or debating relativism and absolutism. And, and, you know, and this Indian gentleman philosopher, he's, he's sitting there, uh, just eating his food. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's describing, so he's like the other, the teacher is, you know, frantically writing notes on napkins and his food's cold and he finishes his food. The guy thinks he's explained Indian culture and Hinduism and all of this to this man who was brought up in it. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and so, um, he calls for some boiling water and then holds it over his head mm-hmm. and, um, is like, do I pour it or not? Because the the um, American philosopher was like saying there is no either or, mm-hmm. there's yeah, there's a million ways, and then he goes, um, he goes, the either or does sort of emerge out of the uh, the equation, doesn't it? Because he's <laughs> like, I don't want the hot water on my head. Yeah, the, the rubber meets the road, and so then and then this guy Ravi sits down and he's like, yeah, you know, even in India we look both ways before we cross the street. <laughs> I mean he. Yeah, that's all he said. He he physically had hot water, was going to pour it on his head, and then he just told him in India we both. He didn't even have to do any. He didn't philosophize. He didn't do anything. He just like demonstrated the point. Yeah. Um. And uh. Yeah, I mean, so like, I don't. I kind of forgot why I was saying that. Shoot. Um. Talking about failure. Yeah. So failure. So it's yeah. So paradox. So it's weird. It's weird that we you know we have like psychological confidence in our ability to construct paradoxes that justify us being afraid of failing, while also saying um, there's there's no one. We all get to define success our own way, or you can do it a million different ways. And I think what's not admitted in that is. There's some kind of negotiation with the persons to themselves where they're like, I don't want to work to have a deeper understanding to un, to resolve that paradox. I want the convenience to pivot to whatever protects me the most. Yeah. It's not going well. 
Well, there's a million different ways of um, defining success. Because we, th- I think we think that I, I don't think we've defined failure either. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, that's that's a very interesting point because uh, I think failure and success are a huge part of how we understand or rationalize uh, confidence. Correct. Right? Um, because we we almost uh, like keep score in a sense, like it's a like it's a lifelong baseball game. You know, mm. <laughs> the top of the inning we score one, the bottom of the inning they score one, and back and forth and. And whoever comes out at the end, like I'll either have the confidence or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I feel it like does come a lot from failure and success. Um, and so it, it's interesting because I used to tell students that they should champion success or to fail, champion success, uh, failure, excuse me. Um, but I stopped using that, that wording because I felt like that was too strong because then what you're doing is you're having confidence in the fact that you can't do it. Mm-hmm. And that's not what I want to instill in students. Sure. Um, but what you should do is uh, you you accept it, but you accept it warmly. Yeah. Um, so, um, and and so the the way that I try to unpack this for a lot of folks is just to to put it in very normal everyday things and make it ridiculous. Point out the absurdity of how normal failure is in our day. Mm-hmm. And I said, so I'll look at a class of students and I'll say, okay, you're, you know, let's go back to this morning. When you were in bed or this afternoon, whenever it was, you actually woke up when you were in bed, when you were in bed, (laughs) when you were starting your day, getting out of bed, um, what are some of the normal things you do in the morning? Hopefully you're brushing your teeth and eating some food and, uh, getting dressed and, you know, the normal sort of start of your day activities. And so you're standing in front of your closet, you know what the weather is outside and you pick out a pair of pants, you put them on and then you put a shirt on. Well, you go about your business for a little bit and you realize, I don't actually want to wear this shirt. So you take it off, you find another one, you put it on. Okay, we're good. I was like, what, if we're taking all of the, the fanciness and everything else away from it, what just happened in that experience? Well, your first outfit was a failure. It did not succeed. It did not stay. It did not stick around. It's not the one that found its way out into your social day or whatever else. And students just kind of brush it off. and like, well, that's just stupid. Right. And I'm like, no, it's accepted. It's something that's become a normal part of it. And you haven't beaten yourself up over the fact that the first shirt you put on is not actually the one you left the house with. Yeah. You've, you've understood that that is a, a healthy and normal part of the process of just getting out the door. That you might change your mind. You may put some bread in the toaster and say, I'm going to have toast for breakfast. And when it pops up, you say, no, actually, I don't want that. I want something else. Mm-hmm. You've changed your mind. You've started down a path. It hasn't been the path that worked or that you wanted, and you did something else. I was like, if we can start to understand failure as that normal in our lives, then it ceases to become something that is so highly detrimental that it starts to paralyze us. Yeah, and it over dictates what we what we define as success and creative or yeah. because you know, because one of the things I'd I'd say like in that is like that illustration, I, I like that illustration. It it um I love that it puts it into a normalized context, like because it makes you kind of look at a lot of other things that echo yeah. that same point in your life that are normal. And what that does is it rubs against um, the pressure on making art and, you know, creative work as being extraordinary. Right. Which do, which I think that exists. However, I think oftentimes extraordinary expressions of effort and making come from baselines of ordinary expressions of work. And yeah. so there's a, there's a, a de, uh, you know, we often angle for one over against the other um, because the other is uh, ho-hum daily 
and you know, in, in failure, it's worth saying it's like, um, nuanced. So it's falling short of the mark in some way. Yeah. But that doesn't tell you how, by how much or how little and, or how important that mark and, was and how important, the first That's place. exactly right. So the degree, what's at stake, like I was saying, yeah. what's that cost there? And so one of the things that I think is because we've, I, th- I do think in some ways we're very critical in other ways, we're not, um, we haven't parsed this out well enough to, to, to live in some of the freedom that's there to kind of realize that like, um, uh, does this action cause these uh, consequences? Uh, no. Okay. Well, um, what if people reject what I'm making? Well, what if? What if it actually is that bad? Also, what if there's a situation, there's no situation in life where someone won't reject what you make? That's, and that's, I mean, that's 100%. Like, there, ha- that has to be the case. So, you know, it gets to things like, who's your audience? Who's the bridge? Mm-hmm. You know, how, how strong is that audience? Like, who are you making for? What, what do you... Um, you know, what, why are you making, you know, kind of demands these other questions that kind of um, impede our confidence. So like sometimes we don't get to a a place of confidence because we're unwilling to define what it is we want. We're playing games. We're, we're hiding. We want, we want this like ultimate assurance to come through the means of our making so we can be, we can control how we're affirmed while giving the appearance that we're eccentric, which is a way of exaggerating ourselves to the point of being perceived as special or unique. Yeah. So our work is pressurized to bring to bear individuality in a hyperbolic sense, in a, uh, in a large sense, so that we can gain some, um, some more oomph in the way we're perceived and cared for and thought of. And we want to be cared for and thought of in a way that enables us to live guilt-free with freedom. Like we want, we want freedom to do and we want to eliminate consequence for falling short. Mm-hmm. So like it, it seems to me, especially in Western society where we're more individualized, um, you know, it'd be interesting to think about this at a context where it's more corporate, collective, mm-hmm. you know, and there is a collective thing happening right now is almost an overreaction to the uh, individualism that has sort of been at large. And, you know, the cultural expressions we make tend to bear evidence of whatever the flavor of ideology, the zeitgeist, if you will. And so, you know, we see uh, heroes of the past, people that I admire that were, you know, the individuals in the studio, that kind of thing. Um, Those stories are told and they're mythologized and um, and then they come down to us as sort of assumed truths. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then they're institutionalized and taught. You know what I mean? Like they come through art history classes and then you assume a stance and then you got to figure out if you can get the confidence to be that you're looking for affirmation. The crazy thing about that is you're not living in the 1940s while admiring 1940s painters or designers. So, so now you're, um, you're having to kind of construct a context to affirm things that you're learning about that are historical in a contemporary setting. Mm -hmm. A strange conundrum, man, that is produced year in and year out for people. Like, you know what I mean? They like try on the cl- these clothes that aren't theirs. And um, yeah, I, I just, you know, and I think, dude, I love history. So, mm-hmm. um, but without some good tools for kind of processing it out, it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to place why you're doing what you're doing and, and how to feel about it. Yeah. You know? And I mean, and the thing is most of us, most of us hit this space where we kind of set ourselves on a, on a life trajectory or career path uh, within art and design at a point where these kind of reflective discussions are, are just not a part of our Correct. even concept of how to do things. Yeah. Right. So 
you know, most of us, you know, we've talked to so many artists on the show. We've um, had conversations with each other and talked about the fact that like the trajectory for becoming a designer for me was much further in the past than I was able to be like existential. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but then we get to a point and we kind of, we realize that some of these conversations never happened and we're trying to make sense of the shaky ground that we feel like we're on. Mm-hmm. So when you're in your forties and you're asking yourself in an existential moment of angst, um, like, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Like, why is this hard? How come this isn't happening? If you're in that spot, um, there's a lot of things that you haven't considered that have just been filled with assumptions mm-hmm. or whatever's there. So, I mean, it's, it's, I think this is why the conversation can be so difficult for folks at times because we don't necessarily start down that path mm-hmm. until a little later. Yeah. After we're already kind of halfway down that path to begin with. No, I mean, that's a great thought, man. I mean, you kind of get it and you get it. I mean, that's a great point. I mean, that's the, probably why we do the podcast in some ways. Like we just are having these conversations ourselves. <laughs> we're processing through it. Yeah. <laughs> and so then you're like, you know, I know I'm not alone because we meet people all the time. And they're like, you guys ever think about talking about that on air or writing a book? And then, so you're like, okay, we're not talking, people aren't talking about it. This is coming from, we're getting feedback, you know, yeah. like, and, um, you know, like even me, I was working on a painting one day, just this week, one day I hated it. The next day, I mean, I was like, by the, I loved it in the morning. By the end of the day, I hated it. And I was like, I think I've ruined this painting. The next day I did some new move and I was like, I think painting's working well. And, um, the thing I had to remind myself is to not ride too high or too low yeah, because I could have made decisions that disabled the process to, to move through to completion. Mm-hmm. And I had to remind myself of that. And I think that's the thing that I realized is like, you don't really get past these things. You just kind of have to continually bear them up in, in the process. And it requires other people. So like for me, I jokingly, my wife had, comes into my studio, Laura, and she calls, she says she's my agent. <laughs> yeah. And so I've just been owning it. She'll come in and she'll be like, that color, you need to change that. And she'll start <laughs> messing with my, she'll start rearranging paint cans and what about this? And you know, it's, it's funny, but she's, she's got a good eye and good thoughts. So, um, she helps me and, um, she'll jokingly say sometimes that's my painting or, but you know, if I didn't have someone else invested like that, um, yeah, I mean, it changes, it reinforces the confidence, Mm -hmm. um, because somebody else is bearing out the difficulty with me. Yeah. Now that difficulty is very small compared to like, it's a lesser kind of difficulty to, to other life concerns, you know, like what's going on in the world or, you know, paying the bills and mm-hmm. health stuff and right family, kids, you know, um, but relative to that range, it's like, she gives me equilibrium, keeps me calibrated. And, yeah. and that's just one person. There's more, you know what I'm saying? I'm just giving you an expression of one. Oh, yeah. And so that does point towards, um, that communal piece, that educational piece, the informative piece, there is a kind of cultural institutional aspect to it. Um, no, totally. I mean, I think most folks would probably say the last time, like if, if they're feeling issues of like confidence or lack of confidence in what they're doing, um, I think some folks would say, I, you know, they'd look fondly back on art school mm-hmm. and they'd say, you know, I felt like I had a lot of confidence there. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it probably is more about that community. Than that respect. Yeah, no, that's another great point. So, so um, that's really interesting because you'll meet, so depending on what they studied, you know, in my experience in the arts or just, where they're at. Um, I found two kinds of people, people that, lo- I mean, it, I feel like it's polarized to two kinds of people. I'm not saying I'm r- totally right here, but try to hear the point. The point is I, I tend to experience two kinds of people, people that were really, it's like the, it's like the people that loved high school and mm-hmm. they're still kind of living in high school. Yeah. I know some folks like that. Yeah. 
God bless him, but you know, that's not me. Um, yeah. Just didn't, <laughs> I didn't love high school. Nope. But, but grad school, there's some people that just, that was oh, it, yeah. man. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and, and I understand why, for, to your point, right? Yes. Because um, that's true. There's, there's a, it's intense a community. Intense community. And so for a lot of people, that really is something that sets up an expectation that then, that, that then is not present after. And I think that's a lot of reasons why. You know, I started doing what I was doing years ago at Shock Art Space, and why you jumped mm-hmm. on board, like why we do what we do now, and how we're seeing it going forward. Like, I mean, we really understand that and care about that a great yeah. deal. Like that, it should be shared with a larger audience. That should not be happening. There should be life post grad school. Grad school should be the start, not the end. Yeah, heartbreakingly, it's treated as the end. It's like when people say like wedding day is your best day. Mm-hmm. Uh, like my wedding day was awesome. But that's my wedding day is more like my the day I was born. It was really important, but it's way in the past. And yeah. every other day has been much better. Right. Yeah. I've always had issues with that. We you know, you hear these ridiculous like commencement speakers in high school that are talking about like these will be the best years of your life. And I'm like, then why am I doing then it? why am I doing this? And why go forward? If yeah, this was ridiculous. it, why am I leaving it? Right? It yeah. doesn't make any sense. It's so backwards, right? It's mm-hmm. misleading, it's sentimental. So um, but there is truth that like post grad school uh, uh, for various reasons, community drops off. Hence, our discussion about ecosystems. It's it's more than merely just artists getting together. There's infrastructure, yeah. and there's a lot a lot at play that's got to be looked at and and stewarded and cultivated. Right? Yeah, um, it, yeah. It's more than like you know ha- having a first Friday. It's more than you totally. know, going for a studio visit. Like, yeah, it, it's a lot more than the stuff that I think we just kind of that we see that we see. say. Oh, this is a, this is what we do. It's like yeah. no, I think it's much more. And we've seen people. Um, in the last couple of years that we've worked with um, start to be very highly collaborative. Mm-hmm. And, and even in that, I don't, I don't know if they would say the same thing, but from posts I've seen or conversations we've had with them, um, that sort of deeper relationship and bigger collaboration has turned into a different level of confidence in their work and what they right. do. Right. It put, put settles some questions, put some anxieties at ease. Yeah. Right. Um, and, but the other thing with grad school that it produces is lack of confidence. So, because, uh, you know, and I, this is, this is, this is like definitely for a different talk probably too. So be more summary, I guess. But, um, in grad school, you also go to schools where the goal is to tear you down and see who's left standing. Oh yeah. Right. So the premium is on, um, skepticism, you know, and, um, you know, I said, I wanted to do a talk on that in the past. Like I'd like to do something really technical in, in this realm, but I will at least just say that um, coming out of uh, modernism, which was very an optimistic time, there was a, uh, a self-critical, self-aware analysis on the failures of modernism, the falling short of ideals of modernism and uh, modernity and modernism, right? The competing views on what what is going to bring utopic, life to society through whatever means, right? Science or the arts. And so a uh, reason. And so um, that gets institutionalized as the premium is, is being skeptical, unsure, questioning everything, you know? And so you go into grad school, you know, from the nineties to early two thousands and you're trained to be not confident. I was going to say you, you get trained uh, as a knee jerk reaction to erode uh, the confidence of others and then we ask questions of like why we're not confident. Yeah, then we wonder, right? So All the, my vocabulary is about 
tearing down what you do. Exactly. And then we think that that same conversation is not going to be turned back on ourselves in our minds. That's right. right? That I'm not going to look at this and be like, oh, my work is crap and I'm crap and this yeah. isn't good and nobody yeah. likes it. It's like, well, that's what we've yeah. conditioned ourselves to talk or about. Or you become a hypocrite where, where for you, you're self-confident. But when when we look at the work, the work is on par with the work that you're tearing down and, and yeah. there's no perceivable discrepancy between the two. So then it's based on cult of personality or intellectual rigor. So it becomes who can intellectualize the most ironic, the most sort of um, yeah, yeah. Uh, skeptical point of view. And so you see skepticism move into a kind of deep sort of irony in the middle 2000s. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, everything is under question and it becomes more about being snarky and ironic. Mm-hmm. Like this is like that. And, and I've sat in critiques where it's really just mocking straw men mm-hmm. um, I mean, th- that are not even in the room. Those posters I was talking about that I felt were so pretentious were exactly that. Yeah. It, 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 yeah, was, yeah. it was all a snarky uh, point of finger. So instead of, it was highly reactive instead of being, uh, you know, um, proactive. Yeah. So I wasn't, I wasn't worried about making things as much as I was about uh, commenting on the things that have been made. Totally, totally. So you're just commenting and you're shooting people down, which you said it earlier, which I agree with. It's easier to be, it's easier to tear people down to build them up. It's easier to be negative than positive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it actually takes a lot more of you to be positive. You got to work harder. You got to know more actually. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot requires harder more to humility. be positive um, and, and, sound, and be sincere. Correct. Right? Uh, because, because positivity includes that. That's right. Because uh, if I'm just positive and insincere, then it's all written it's, off. It's, yeah, it's shallow. Yeah, 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 you're flipping. Um, but, you know, it's I don't, I don't have to be sincere in my negativity. Yeah. I just have to be casual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because the negativity is assumed as the trust trustworthy ground. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. So then right. you get to where, so if you get to where we're at now in, in universities, where a lot of work right now is not predicated on old, Deconstructing old modernist constructs, mm-hmm. issues of aesthetic and beauty and formalism, and you know, thirty years of deconstructing that. Um, it's built on now, uh, you know, in the most careful way I can say it. A lot of there's a lot of interest in in diversity and identity, and mm-hmm. so you get yeah. into critiques, and all of a sudden these kind of old school pe- folks don't know how to critique art because for them critiquing art is tearing down the subject. Yeah. Well, when the subject is the person who is marginalized in this mm-hmm. kind of uh, sort of nuanced matrix of diversity, mm-hmm. now you can't talk. Yeah. I mean, it's really fascinating because I mean, you because you you would literally be critiquing that person in 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 that framework, right? Yeah. And so we have eroded our ability to talk meaningfully about art and art making and helpfully. So I think critiques are often meant to be helpful. Uh, well, I mean, I not I to tear down all the all the critiques I was ever a part of uh, early on, and I'm I'm talking about like pre college. So when when there were critiques like um, for any sort of things, whether it was you know writing or music or art or whatever it was, um, the the precursors to that were always the the instructors talking about the fact that this should be constructive, that all of this was meant. So even if something was negative and problematic. The, the the intention behind it was always that the thing that you were trying to get a out of somebody or away or somebody away from was always to produce something better. Mm-hmm. However, that is defined. Um, so it wasn't just a oh, just talk crap about it and just you know degrade it. But it was always we're we're trying to uh, trying to be cumulative in what we do 
for the piece of mm-hmm. work. Um, which when I hear, um, if, if you're in an art school for any given time, you will hear some student complain to you about the nature of critique. Mm-hmm. And some of it is just based off the fact that some people just don't like doing it. It's uncomfortable. But a lot of it is students kind of crying out for what you're talking about here, mm-hmm. which is they're like, you know, I leave and they haven't actually helped me. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and also you're paralyzed. It becomes herd, herd mentality a little bit because you're like, well, everybody, the way you earn approval from the teacher is by expressing a negative opinion yeah. Yeah. and a negative opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, who can elucidate their negative opinion more artfully, more intellectually, and it creates intellectual yeah. discourse or that that is more su- about supporting your rightness and your point, and in uh, many times has less and less to do with the actual work itself. And so, what that does is it creates a system that allows the cream to rise to the top. Mm-hmm. Good makers just are good makers; they get kind of a pass. Yeah, they bypass criticality, but it vets everybody else and puts them in their place. Mm-hmm. Right, well, so it serves as a strange vetting that um, regulates who who is who and who gets what affirmation and what esteem, and you know what I'm saying. But like yeah. the best makers seem to ha- like they may include criticality, but they also can bypass criticality because I've seen some of the best artists have been some of the worst artist talks in studio visits, and it's yeah. like because they just don't have to worry about that now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They're kind of po- they're kind of they've kind of blown past that. But everybody else is in this assumed hierarchy. It's assumed. It's not stated. Yeah. And you, you grovel. You know, you're hoping for anointing from you know the professor you admire or the, you know the um, the the uh, critic you admire, the art, you know the art historian or the mm-hmm. curator, and um, those things matter. But um, when it's culturally built on eroding confidence, where does your confidence come from? It's, it's a tough one. Yeah. And it's, you know, just because of how, what I was doing when I, while I was growing up, it's, it's really hard as we've mentioned before on the podcast, it's hard for me not to have these conversations and then try to put them into the same sort of scenarios within something like sports. And so I think of, you know, studio practice and practice. Um, so our studio practice and what we do, if, if I were to go to practice, uh, I grew up playing soccer and then running track later on and cross country if I were to go to practice, my assumption was that the point of practice was to point out where I was not good. Yep. But then to focus on those areas for improvement. Right. Right. It was not to. I mean, if, if I everybody probably had a terrible coach that played sports at some point in their life, and I had one that would just tell us what we did wrong. It was a mm-hmm. basketball coach I had for one season while I was playing like pee wee basketball, um, and he um, he would just tell us, "Well, you're shooting it too hard." Like, okay, cool. And mm-hmm. coach and, mm-hmm. but there wasn't any response. Yeah. There's no know how, but then, uh, I had a soccer coach growing up who was fantastic. He was this younger guy, like mid twenties. And, um, he was one of the two coaches we had. Um, and he would actually get out there and physically show you what was going on. Mm-hmm. So he's like, all right, you're doing this. And that's not helpful because of this. So therefore, do this thing. Mm-hmm. Position yourself in this place. When you do this, make your body in this shape or in, in this sort of relationship to the ball. So it was always a, I am, I'm going to critique you in a negative sense because I want you to realize how this is detrimental to what you are, you've already told me you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. 
And then the second step would always have been, and here's how we do it in yeah. a way that's more, more, whatever word you want to put with it, uh, more, more fruitful. Sure. Um, and so those were always the best coaches. Mm-hmm. And then I think about critiques I've been in and most of them were just that terrible basketball coach I had. They yeah. were just saying, yeah, you did yeah. that wrong. Yeah. It's like, well, what do you mean? Right. And they're like, well, you know, that's yeah, it, if, that's it. if that's wrong, what's right. 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 And you know, it's like, you look at somebody, you look at any of the NBA players and they're all going to have a slightly different way that they hold and release. Mm-hmm. They're always going to, they're all going to have a slightly different way that they position themselves, how they feel comfortable toward the basket, but they're all going to be doing it within the same sort of basic parameters, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and I think that's, there's something like that to keep in mind that you can, you can tell somebody, Hey, you're, you're actually, you're shooting with the wrong hand. Like that's not your, your dominant hand. And that's a problematic thing. Um, but most, most coaches are going to say, this is a a motion or something you need to do, but do it in a way, you know, but you do it with what comes naturally to you. You incorporate, you make it your own, Mm -hmm. your thing. So it's not trying to cookie cutter, stamp out factory made, Mm -hmm. you know, basketball players, but there Mm -hmm. are certain things that are helpful to realize that these, these work better. Yeah. They're more helpful. It's why we, why we go to art school. It's why we learn skills, right? That's why we want to improve. So there's always the critique and the improve yeah. that was always there in sports, but I, I, I don't know. Yeah. 10, 15% of the time I got in critiques in mm-hmm. creative spaces. Yeah. I never yeah, got yeah. the critique and improve. It was just the, you're doing it wrong. Bad. Yeah. Like yeah bad yeah. Gareth. Next. Right. Yeah. And it's easier. And a lot of folks just don't have the tools. They're, they're competent makers, but they couldn't tell you why. Right. You know, and there's historical reasons for that. And then there's just the interpersonal stuff, like just the, the um, abilities. I mean, there's levels to what I can you know, I, I teach my students and I, you know, you've been in critiques with me with just artists in general. Like I try to, I try to acquaint myself with what someone's doing and what works in a work. Yeah. And I try to uh, affirm that and point it out because I feel like that sets up the framework to talk about why something may be not working or, mm-hmm. um, because in that, in that localized sense, it's relative to the given work they're making. It's not, you know, it's not necessarily relative to all work that's ever been made. Yeah. Um, so for me, there's always levels, there's qualitative ranges to like what you're talking about and the scope of it. You know, I was in a, used to go to a lot of sculpture critiques at VCU when I was a uh, grad student doing painting and I just hung out with the sculpture students cause their dialogues were just so much better. And, um, so interesting. And, uh, every studio we, we do, we're doing critiques, right. And everybody's work is good. And there's critical discourse. Okay. So mm-hmm. later on the night, we'll go to this uh, guy, Sammy Ben Larby, who's kind of awesome artist here, sculptor, just kind of another other world. But we had to get in these cars and drive out to this like warehouse. So one, I'm just like, you know, why are we going to a warehouse? Like what <laughs> is going on? And we walk into this warehouse and there's just this giant welded thing. I mean, giant thing. I mean, it was like a, um, spinning contraption that was replicating an old Turkish black and white film hmm. where this guy and this kid are stuck on this um, spinning device that the gravity keeps you stuck on it. Mm-hmm. And it's black and white. And they're, it's like a chase scene, I think. Mm-hmm. And so one guy is trying to move and grab this kid, but he can barely move his body. And then the kid's like, because the gravity, they're only able to move a few inches while everything is spinning. Right. Mm-hmm. 
And so here's this object that he's made for the piece, which is him recreating that scene. Mm-hmm. So all you're seeing is the video, but we're getting to see everything. Dude, I, there was not one person that could say anything. Everybody <laughs> just stood there quiet in awe. Yeah. And it was like, there's no need, there's no critique. <laughs> this yeah. is just, uh, this was just awesome. Right. Even the professor who is awesome himself, uh, had no words. Mm-hmm. Everybody was just quiet and like, it, I mean, it was really purely, tell us about this again. And, and I, I think his English was his second language, if I remember correctly. He's from Tanzania or I think. Um, and he was a very, um, a person of few words. Yeah. He didn't say much. He kind of told, said about as much as I just did in a way. But uh, the work said everything. It was staggering. Mm-hmm. From investment, makership, I mean, mm-hmm. just stunning, just stunning. So um, every now and then, that happens. Mm-hmm. The point is, at the number one sculpture school in the country, that happened once. Yeah. Everybody else, there was critique, and they were great makers. You, so mm-hmm. one, of yeah, the, yeah. You know, one of the points that I'm making is um, there are those times where someone makes something and that happens. But what I see more of is like the... I mean, what I saw there was vision and dedication. Like, I mean, that was like this like personal and cosmic thing happening. Like they had some deep metaphors that were really embedded in this work. It was a powerful work on multiple levels. I mean, there's a lot to say about it as a recipient, yeah. uh, not as ne- necessarily as a critiquer. And so, um, but what you get a lot of times is the opposite, man. You get the person who's like, I'm an artist and I got vision. And, and then they show you their poorly painted acrylic painting and of, a, of like a, a bird Mm-hmm. You know, and not that birds aren't great, but you haven't even thought about what a bird is enough to actually utilize the capacity of paint to deal with anything about birds. You're just appropriating an image and your, your, your confidence is so sentimental. It's, um, it's acidic. It's like, it's, it's, it's disingenuine. It's like, I'm not even sure where to go with you as a person. I can't talk to you yeah, because there's obviously a lack of, um, depth unless of course on the reverse, the person is like, I want to cultivate vision. I would like to become an artist. I just don't know how. And here's what I've got. That I can work with. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. But yeah. when it's the other, so what happens is you just get a lot of hobbyists that people dance around, and mm-hmm. the hobbyists tend to get out in the culture faster. So then the average person thinks artists are what they see in the hobbyist, who's got an overestimation of their ability, and they've put very little time into the making and so it has almost no effect or affect mm-hmm. on anybody. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? So then in oh, yeah. the real makers, a lot of times are a little more embedded and buried and, and hidden, and they're not going to walk around self-aggrandizing. Also, partly because they've been trained to be um, uh, self-critical to the point of no confidence. So they, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, yeah. you see what I'm saying? It's, yeah. it's a strange animal, you know, but it relates to the, I think you can see it relates to this discussion of an ecosystem, and it will reason why I think, I guess also I'm bringing it up is um, there's a lot of questioning right now about the value of art in the midst of yeah. a pandemic. While also people are, are turning to art, the questions are greater, the value is greater, and people are, so they're criticizing it more and turning into it more. Mm-hmm. The paradox is being pushed harder into mainstream culture, you know? Yeah. 
So the, yeah, it's, I mean, it raises a lot of questions. I mean, I think that's why I think there's, it's definitely, I don't know if this is a, if we've kind of, I mean, the goal is not to leave anybody in despair, but I think, I think we've at least, um, what do you think? I think we've identified yeah. the need, right? Yeah, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I think it's that, um, if, if nothing else, I think what we've done today is we've provided a very good catalog of all the ways that something like confidence actually can be very confusing and hard to navigate. Correct. Um, and why I think we oversimplify when we talk about it, mm-hmm. right? And we, and we say things going back to what you started with at the beginning of just being like, oh, just get more confidence. Yeah. You know, why we say that is because it's easier to say that than to spend the time actually getting in the conversation, thinking about it, you know, doing things like that. Um, yeah, get, get, get more confidence is not, there's not a, gof, a confidence station where you pay, yeah. pay a money and it's like a gas station. You pump some more confidence in and you go. Yeah, for it's really. cult, it's, it's embedded and tied to a, a larger, it's tied to uh, relationships. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing I think we can kick off next time is like un, untangling the knot, so to speak. Yeah, because you know, I mean, we've, we've talked about the knot today. Yeah, that's I mean, right. Definitely, no yeah. problem there. But that knot is composed of several strings. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in the next episode, we're really going to get into like, what are those strings? How do we look like look at them? Yeah. Because um, you might be surprised. Some of the strings that uh, are a part of confidence may not be the ones that you're considering. Yeah, um, that's interesting. You know, and that's going to be different for a lot of different folks. Dude, you're dropping a cliffhanger on us, Gareth. I'm just saying. I mean, Dang it's it. good to tune in next time. Dang you know, it. But now uh, I got to know. <laughs> I'm going to ask you off air. <laughs> Don't worry, you'll be there, Ryan. Okay, all right, thanks, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, you know, this episode, we've I think we've really have just laid it all out there and just had a lot of stuff. And there's a good chance that you know, from y'all listening, there's other things you could add to sure. this tangled knot because you know, confidence and lack of confidence, it's a messy, messy thing. Yep. So there's a lot that goes into it. But um, you know, the nice thing about messy things is usually when they're cleaned up, they don't quite look so scary. Yeah. You know, that's how I feel about my or kitchen desirable. all the time. Yeah. You know, you get done making a big meal and you look at it and you're like, well, we probably just need to move. Yeah. Um, or burn this place to the ground. I feel like that when I get a haircut. My hair got <laughs> COVID-19 hair. Dude, I started looking a lot older. Oh, and yeah. And I cut my hair and I was like, okay, I look a little better. Dude, I started I looking really old. I got, I mean, my, uh, I'm still, still uh, rocking the mustache. Yeah. It's getting bushier. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, every day looking at the it's mirror, impressive. I feel like a different person. Oh, it's impressive. So, I'm always excited about it. And there's, you know, two or three little, like, not gray, but like white hairs yes. up in it, man. Yeah. And I'm like, come on now. Join is, me. Is, <laughs> yes, come to the dark no, it's, side. It's still better than the, the morning I was laying in bed and our daughter came in and she laid next to me and she looked at me and she just kind of just kind of stared at my face for a minute. And she reached up towards her lip where a mustache would be. And, uh, she said, you got, you got these, these like white things in there. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, go back to bed. Yeah. Well, wait till that turns into my daughter Ivory and Ava at different times have cried no, looking no. at the side of my face and going, daddy, your hair is getting white. <laughs> and then like Ivory just, I don't want you to get old, dad. I'm, and I'm like, I'm sorry. I can't help it. One day she'll look at my facial hair and she'll go, dad, you have these. He's like brown things in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All be white. It'll all be white. But yeah, it's uh, I got the same, rocking the same, uh, you know, Corona hairstyles, man. That's right. It's a thing. It's a thing. We got to do it. But yeah, and then, you know, the next episode, we're going to unpack these things, take the messy stuff, hopefully try to clean it up a little bit. Yep. Um, and our hope is not to be, um, you know, kind of uh, dictatorial in this and say, the, you know, these are the answers. Yeah, there's is. no hard and fast but here, really but there's some good thoughts, unpacking. good categories. It's yeah. unpacking. It's yeah. helping us to kind of think well about stuff. You know, because I... There's there's a fatigue on my part with a lot of artists, whether students or whatever else, where everything becomes an existential crisis. Yeah, I think, I think that's one of the things. I think so. If we if I had to say one of my goals 
with this popping around and maybe because I've been making lately too, but yeah. you know, and then we hadn't, we hadn't seen each other much, you know, this virus is the thing, right? Yeah. So then we got to talk a little bit. It's like, but one of the goals and I, I knew you would agree with is, is, uh, cause we feel the same way is, um, is that there, you want, um, uh, uh, true freedom. Yeah. Um, I don't mean like fake sentimental freedom. I mean, like you want to have people freed up from that, which is constraining them Mm -hmm. unnecessarily. That which is working in opposition to, I think what we ought to be. And Mm so, um, yeah, I want to get people moving from a space where they're asking a question every morning when they wake up, they look in the mirror and they say, why am I doing this? Yeah. And instead they wake up every morning and they say, what am I doing today? Yeah. What am I doing? Or I get to do it. Yeah. They're like, Hey, this is fantastic. What am I making today? Not why am I making or why is this so hard, but what am I doing? Let me get down to it. Let's make some making. Yeah. And let's get it rolling. Let's make some making. And on that note, folks, it's fantastic. As always, we love you guys. Fantastic audience. And we'll see you next time. Yep. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent, nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottle.